On this episode of the Organic Life Podcast, we're joined once again by Monica Wild. This time, we're going to take a deeper look at the subject of foraging. So even just getting outdoors in nature can be really good for you. And when you throw in the fact that you can find an almost infinite supply of highly nutritious food for free, you do only start to scratch the surface of the massive amount of benefits to be had here, as we're about to find out. If you look at, you know, in this day and age, on the one hand, it's never been easier for us to to have food. Um, you know, I could I could phone a, a pizza and it'd be here in in ten minutes. We're so far removed from the preparation of that. Um, and then you look at, you know, chronic disease and and all these things has never been higher in human history. Do you think a more almost a stupid question but moving back to getting closer to the source of your food is is something that certainly you know doing yourself is a great thing if you're bringing up children great thing to to obviously get them involved in as well isn't it of course and especially with children you know if you give them a love of nature you at least get them away from the screen for a while um yeah it's true that there's a whole group of diseases that are called ncds non-communicable diseases um, things like diabetes and cancer, for instance, are both non-communicable diseases. And when you go back much earlier in the history of man, you know, when he did die of disease, it was a, um, you know, bacteria, a plague or a bacteria, um, normally caused by overcrowding as people started to live in early towns and cities with poor sanitation. Well, by the end of the Victorian time, where they had sorted out the sanitation in the late 1800s, and they also had invented the railways. You had a sort of golden era where trains brought fresh produce from the countryside into the cities every day. The sanitation had been sorted out. And people were living as long as they do um, now. You know, the the idea that everybody just died younger is, is is a bit of a myth when you look at it. But they had much better quality of life as they were older because their, you know, diabetes and cancers and arthritis were absolutely minimal. And it's not that they didn't know how to diagnose it. They did. But there wasn't a lot of chemical um, interference. You know, all the food was organic because they hadn't invented pesticides and herbicides and they hadn't invented plastic and, you know, everything was just so much more natural. You know, they had dyes and things that were early chemicals being invented, but it hadn't become as overwhelming as it is now. You know, I think only by reconnecting with nature do you understand that we're all part of one thing. You know, you can't separate humans from the earth and nature without disastrous consequences for us as a species and many of the other, you know, warm-blooded and cold-blooded species that there are, the living species. You know, ultimately the planet you know, may change, it'll it'll still be here. Um, But we're the ones who are really going to suffer. And once you start to become really immersed in nature, um, it's not just about the food, it's about, you know, the knowing. It's very hard for me to explain this, but there's a, an intimacy with the natural world. You know, it's all alive. Things just are alive on different scales. Consciousness is just on different scales as well. You know, plants have consciousness, but in a very different way. You know, you can even say bacteria have consciousness. You know, they can certainly count. It's called quorum sensing. 
Um, you know, they ha they have an awareness of their surroundings. And once you become really aware of what's going on, um, you realize that, you know, we cannot be separated. So teaching children from a young age is, is really important. You know, that if you give a child a love of nature before they're 10, you know, they'll have it for life. But also you'll start to understand when it comes to your own diet, um, what you need and how different it is. So sometimes, um, you know, when I'm over at, at um, Napier's and talking to people who've become ill um, and you end up talking about diet and they might have quite poor diet. So a lot of processed foods, a lot of um, very strangely colored food, <laughs> you know, lots of sugary food, lots of carbohydrates. Um, and they'll say, oh, you know, food, yeah, it's become so confusing. You know, in the papers you'll read that this is good one week and then it's not good the other week and this vitamin's in and then this vitamin's out. And, you know, you know, where do you start? Well, the thing about foraging is if you start with foraging, um, you can do it in the supermarket as well. If you go into a supermarket and you think, what's actually in season right now? When I'm outside walking in the woods, what's in season right now? Then you start to actually understand a lot more about what you should be eating. So, for instance, I try and encourage people to think of things like, um, you know, wheat and sugar and dairy, which have got very bad reputations and lots of people are giving them up completely, um, to see them in the context of seasonal foods. I don't think you should give them up permanently because when you do, you lose the bacteria in your microbiome that are good at processing them. Mm -hmm. So you will never eat them again if you give them up completely. But the important thing is to remember that, you know, right now they've been harvesting the fields and that grain will be saved because there's still lots of food out there until we get to the winter. And then that grain will be eked out over the winter. We'll eat it over the winter. We'll dig up roots over the winter. We'll eat meat over the winter. And then come the, the early spring, um, which, you know, in the old calendar wasn't until, you know, we traditionally think of spring as being about May, but in the Celtic calendar, spring was Irach, you know, started on the 1st of February. So you have this sort of pre-spring era, really. And a lot of the food had run out. You see that echoed in the idea of pancake day, where you use up any last, you know, flour that you have in pancakes, because that was the last that you'd eat out over the winter. Um, you then have a period of fasting or a hungry gap where we would have been driven down to the coast and had to eat seaweeds and shellfish to survive, which is why we need iodine, um, you know, which is such an important part of our diet, you know, particularly in pregnancy when people were getting pregnant in the spring. But you couldn't then have eaten bread again until the harvest time in August because it just wouldn't be available. You know, plants don't do seeds in February, March, April, May, June. You know, so it's a seasonal food and it's the same with sugar. You know, when's sugar in season? If you think about it, can you guess? The summer when yeah, fruit ex exactly, blossoms. Exactly. You know, when the fruits come out, that's when the sugar's, when sugar's in season. So if you imagine saying, you know, saying to people, okay, you know, no problem having some sugar, but only only eat it in season. <laughs> and I guess that's uh, people, you know, like you say, it's a minefield with diet, but somebody 
could just think to themselves, you know what, all year round I'm just going to live off oranges and bananas and things like that. That's not hundreds of thousands of years of evolution is not really going to jive with that, is it? Because, you know, especially if you're in sort of Northern Europe or Ireland, you know, your your ancestors probably lived on like potatoes and things like that. If you just suddenly are just eating apples, oranges, uh, bananas, that's not... I mean, am I right to say that? It's just it's such an unnatural diet for your for your system. Well, I wouldn't have called potatoes necessarily a natural diet as well. I mean, potatoes weren't introduced until around the time of Christopher Columbus in the sort of late Middle Ages. Mm. Um, they came from the Andes where people did eat potatoes, but they ate thousands of different species of potatoes, not just one that had been bred to be, you know, super, super starchy. And, if, and of course... You know, it was their reliance on potatoes that caused the tragedy of the, you know, the Irish potato famine. So it's really about diversity, you know, about, you know, not just taking it for granted that just because we can get food 365 days of the year, 24 hours a day, that it's necessarily good for us. And, you know, the difficulty is, is that, you know, when you when you talk about like, you know, obesity and people are, you know, you think of people as not having self-control. We weren't meant to have self-control. I tell you, if you're a forager and you're out there, you know, it's hard work. You know, if you see a whole crop of, you know, blueberries or blaeberries on a hill or some, you know, beautiful chanterelles or, um, you know, some fresh spring greens, um, you're not going to have restraint, you know, so self-control isn't a built-in mechanism when you're foraging. Um, nature provided the self-control for us because nature would take it away. We'd either eat everything and then have to move to, you know, walk a couple of days to a different location that we hadn't, you know, and normally along the way, you know, the habitats change, you know, we would be given variety all the time. Or just, you know, the season would end and nature would take it away so we could have a break. Um, so self-control you know, it's not something to be ashamed of. You know, having no self-control is not something we were designed to have. It's a modern concept. Yeah, I guess that's why uh, people tend to fail when they adopt like a starvation diet, you know, a severe calorie restrictive diet, because your entire biology is, is then put into a mode where it thinks it's starving and yeah. it just makes people want to, you know, raid the fridge basically, doesn't it? Of course it does. And quite often, if your body thinks you're starving, it'll put on fat to make you be able to last through this period of starvation. Um, you know, in certain um, people and tribes of the world, people would actually put on considerable amounts of, you know, if you think of the desert-dwelling um, bushmen of the Kalahari, you know, during the rainy season, they, they would put on considerable amounts of weight, you know, on their their hips and buttocks, because that was you know, something to live off, um, you know, during the dry season when there was less food around. So our body knows that if there's no food around, you want to conserve some fat. So crash dieting is not the answer. Um, becoming active is, you know, having, uh, you know, an abundance of healthy, good food and being active is because, you know, I mean, if I was to cook you a meal entirely from scratch with quite a lot of diversity in it i'd have to probably go around you know walking around for a couple of hours um just kind of off the back of what we're talking about there so there's a couple of different things to, to kind of unpack one of them is the 
you know, exposure to, I guess, bacteria today that people aren't getting because they're living in more sterile environments. And then I think it was yourself that was, was saying to us when we were out on the walk talking about how if you go and do a bit of gardening, you can really feel mentally healthier after it because of the kind of microbes and, and stuff in the soil that you're unleashing. So there's, there's so many reasons to get outside and, and do this sort of stuff, isn't there? Yes, I remember that. Yes, they found that um, a lot of the microbes in the soil um, have an effect on the neurotransmitters in our brain. So they make us feel happier, which is why, you know, gardeners are normally a pretty happy bunch. And, um, you know, places like Red Hallwald Garden in Edinburgh, where they encourage people with mental health challenges to have allotments, you know, you know a lot of people find a huge amount of peace and calm you know, when they're doing that. Um, what you have to remember also is that the whole of nature is constantly communicating about what's going on um, with a mixture of chemicals that go through the roots of plants and then are transported by the mycelium of the fungi to others, but also through the world of scent. So, I mean, if you imagine a tree, every single cell on the bark of the tree has a receptor for a, you know, chemical so in actual fact, it's like a nose, like every cell on the outside of a tree having lots of noses, well, millions of noses, if you imagine it. Um, and they're always, you know, they're all emitting different molecules, different scent molecules, different aromas that, you know, when they analyze them mean different things. And, um, and we pick up on that as well, particularly in... Um, somewhere like, um, you know, a forest. If you go for a walk in a pine forest and you can feel really calm and chilled and we know from research that your blood pressure will be lower, your heart rhythm will be slower, well, you've been breathing in something called phytoncides, which are emitted by pine trees, you know, on a nice calm day in a forest. So we're breathing in, we're literally breathing in um, the communication from the forest that is well-being, all is well, all is at peace, all is calm. So, um, yeah, our, the you know the natural environment does have that big sort of impact. But when you come to talk about um, you know bacteria, we had this um, you know the school of bacteria or, or the study of bacteria really going back to Louis Pasteur. You know, we all developed this idea that bacteria were an enemy to be wiped out. And yes, you know, people did tragically die when there was a, you know, um, bacterial epidemic. Um, as I said, you know, as soon as people start crowding together, with, you know, add a bit of poor sanitation, you've got a recipe for, for disaster. Um, and with the wide scale development of antibiotics by the end of the Second World War, there was this idea that there's that a war on bacteria and wiping out bacteria was, you know, the answer to the future of health, and also in farming and things to produce more crops. Well, in actual fact, we should have listened to some of Louis Pasteur's colleagues, who were talking about the milieu, the terrain. So what they would notice is that you know you can have several people with the same bacterial infection, but they would all react in different ways. So if the terrain is healthy, um, you're going to be responding to bacteria in a different way. 
And you can look at that with the health of somebody. If somebody's got a strong immune system because they've got a good diet and they're not in an inflammatory condition because of stress and worry or, um, you know, poor diet or lack of exercise, you know, if they get a bug, they're going to be far better able to resist it. And then you have to look at our greater environment as well. You know, if we have a... Um, an environment where we leave everything in balance. Um, you know, you go for a walk in a wild woodland, you know, everything's pretty in balance there. You know, you don't see catastrophic bacterial infection and fungal infection until we start to mess around with it. So the whole scale poisoning of our earth with antibiotics and pharmaceutical residue and chemicals and microplastics and you know we're just creating a unhealthy terrain an unhealthy um, medium in which bacteria are going to fight back and cause us problems um, so the best way that you can keep your own microbial resistance strong is to make sure that you eat as wide a variety of food as possible and that you're exposed yourself and your children to as wide a variety of healthy bacteria as possible. So if you look at plants, for instance, um, you know, all plants except with the, with the major exception of the cabbage family have their own microbiome, like our gut microbiome, they have a rhizobiome around their roots, which is very similar, the same species that we have as well. So it go, figures, you know, if you were able to actually go to um, an organic farm or an allotment where you're growing things organically and eat fruit and vegetables without having to wash them, you're going to end up with a huge variety of um, healthy bacteria in your system. I think just an apple, even not in, in just the skin, but inside the apple, um, there's something like, you know, hundred over a hundred thousand different types of healthy good for you bacteria in fact the, the the microbiome of an apple is way more complex and good for you than any single probiotic capsule you could take if you can source your food organically and eat it raw um you know when they analyzed modern hunter-gatherers the few that are left um you know like the hadza and the arche although we have pushed those communities to the more extreme parts of the earth. On average, they have 300% more microbial diversity in their guts than your average city dweller. So that really is the key to really good health. I think one of the, one of the things that I love about foraging is that it's still something that belongs to all of us. It's really very democratic. And there's no foragology or foragism you can't become a foragist you can't go and do a degree in foraging um, it's one of the last remaining things that is of the people by the people for the people and it's a you know it's an inheritance that we have um, from all of our ancestors in not just the human race but the hominid races before us and it's very, very precious. It's almost like the last bastion um, of freedoms in what's become a very, very highly regulated world. And 
I really hope it will remain like that. And I just think it's lovely to see so many more people connect, but it's not um, just a, you know, set of Instagram snaps. And it's not a fad that should be exploited by, you know, companies or corporations or, um, you know, forums or chat sites that are going to try and then flash up an ad and sell you something. Um, it shouldn't become mainstream in commercial, you know, juices. I don't want to see, you know, um, Coca-Cola Rishi and... <laughs> you know and and wild garlic and the you know on the shelves of tesco's um and i would encourage people to to look into it and to enjoy it and to remember that it's special and it's precious and it's your last connection you know with nature in many places you know nature gives us this abundant source of food for free you know, when when I'm when I'm foraging, you know, between the spring and the autumn, you know, my food bills are minimal, and you know, and everybody's could be too. Um, I mean, we're in no danger of over harvesting nettles, and nettle is a super plant, you know, or super food as they call it. You know, you don't have to fly in from the Amazon. It's incredibly high in vitamins. It's a superb source of iron, calcium. Um, you know, it makes your bones strong, your hair and nails strong and shiny. Um, it reduces the inflammatory response for things like hay fever and allergies. It reduces inflammation in things like arthritis in men, their prostate. Um, nettle seed is one of the best, you know, kidney protectors and restoratives. It supports your thyroid. It gives you energy. It makes you feel happy. You can make fiber out of it. Um, you know, what's there not to love about nettle? And from a culinary point of view, you can do anything with nettle that you could do with spinach as long as you don't eat it raw, you know, because as soon as you dip nettle in boiling water, you know, the little crystal spikes just dissolve. And, um, you know, it's never going to be in danger of over-harvesting. So you're only limited by your imagination when it comes to the cooking of it. Um so getting out there and doing it and enjoying it as a resource, um, I'd encourage everyone to do that, but I'd encourage them to do it in a mindful way, um, to be really mindful about the, you know, the gift that it is, the privilege that it is, and how representative it is of the world that we live in. And once people get into that, once you know where your food is coming from, you become super aware of anything that is done to that environment that is going to threaten that food. Um, we become far more conscious about what's really happening in the world around us. And we need that. You know, we need people to become really, really connected to nature so that they can speak out about what's happening. Because we don't have the government and the leaders who are going to get us out of this jam. You know, if we're going to change the world, it's going to come from the actions that every single one of us takes. Every shopping decision you make, every time you buy something that's in a bit of plastic, um, you know, every time you buy something from a company that supports a, um, you know, highly mechanized or processed way of farming, you know, every choice that you make as a consumer 
is a vote for the type of world you want to live in, you want your children to live in. And until we really realize that, you know, until as a people, you know, so many of us realize that, that we take charge of the direction that this planet's going and not the leaders that we've put in charge, we are just heading towards um, a lot of problems. And even just, uh, you know, going off what you're saying there, that a lot of people maybe use an excuse of of not trying to eat better, not trying to maybe source more ethically sourced food, etc. They'll maybe blame it on cost. You know, it costs a lot to do this. You look out at your, your traditional back garden, you've got some dandelions, some nettles, you've been talking about that. Anyone can identify these, as you say, you know, a dandelion, everyone knows a dandelion, a nettle. So I guess that's maybe the, the very first steps for somebody, isn't it? Just yeah, sure. These. I mean, look at a dandelion. You know, dandelion leaves you can put in a salad. They're, yes, they're a little bit bitter, but so is rocket. So you could use dandelion instead of rocket in a salad. It's got three times more vitamin A than spinach, and spinach is a superfood, right? Um, if you harvest the roots when they're young, not only are you doing a good bit of gardening for your, you know, a <laughs> good bit of gardening for anything else you want to grow later, but you can roast those roots with a little bit of parsnip, drizzle some olive oil over it, maybe a little bit of parmesan, some salt and pepper, bake them. And, you know, the slight bitterness of the dandelion roots with the sweetness of the parsnip, you've got the most incredibly delicious dish there. And if the roots are too old and tough to do that, you can just put them in the oven to roast them and then grind it up and use it instead of coffee. It's, you know, I won't say it's as good as real coffee, but it sure as hell beats instant and it's decaf. You know, so that's, you know, that's a plant that everybody knows that would grow in their back garden. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, if I can make a substantial saving on the, the, um, grocery bill, you know, then a lot of other people could as well and get outside, have a walk, get some exercise, some fresh air. And, um, you lose your worries as well, because when you're looking for food, your mind becomes engaged in the landscape and you stop worrying about, you know, the emails that you haven't done and the, what the boss is going to say tomorrow, um, Really interesting study of, um, uh, it was a Scottish study of middle-aged men and heart attacks and things like that. And they found that sort of, you know, middle-aged men who live in the middle of the city, you know, if they experience stress and their response is to go for a long walk, they have healthier health outcomes overall than people who use any other form of stress relief. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Organic Life. You'll find the show notes, subscribe links and all other episodes over at our website organiclife.me and if you'd like to get in touch with the show you could do so by email at hello at organiclife.me Thanks again for listening and we'll see you on the next one.